This is a Beggy Sisa podcast. This problem is going to hit us like a tsunami wave. There's a sense that we've solved the problem or we've turned the corner. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Have you heard of Africa's youth bulge? It's a problem in the making, but that few people know of. And part of the reason why Africa's HIV epidemic looks so different from that of the rest of the world. Welcome to this edition of our podcast. I'm Becca Sisa's editor, Mia Malan. Today we ask the world-renowned HIV researcher, Professor Salim Abdul-Karim, from the Center for the Programme of AIDS Research in South Africa, why Africa's youth population is increasing so fast and what impact it has on the spread of HIV. This problem is going to hit us like a tsunami wave. And it's a quiet tsunami wave, so we don't even know that it's coming. And that's something we call the youth bulge. Now, let me explain that. About 15 years to 16 years ago, maybe a little bit more than that, the world started rolling out prevention of mother-to-child transmission. And so what we had was a situation where suddenly these young babies that were dying from HIV were now no longer becoming infected from HIV because of AZT and because of nevirapine. And that means that those young babies, those babies who we managed to protect from HIV in their potential transmission from their mothers to the babies, they are now growing up and reaching their teens. And so we've got this bulge now of additional teens coming into the population. So the number of teenagers entering most of the countries in Africa is growing at a high rate. And that's just because of this bulge. And that bulge means that we're going to start seeing more people acquiring HIV. The number of new infections will go up. And as the number of new infections go up, the spread of HIV goes up. It's sad in a way that all that effort we took to protect these babies from getting HIV, now only for them to get HIV when they're now in their adolescence. That tells us we've got to do better. We've got to find ways to enable us to protect them. So all that good work that was done 15, 20 years ago is not all lost as these large numbers of young people acquire HIV in their teen years and in their young 20s. We haven't really found anything that works remarkably well when it comes to addressing age disparate sex. It seems like intervention programs in schools, behavioral change programs haven't worked that well. What are the three things we're not doing? It's a society-level issue. It's not something you can simply tackle by telling people, don't do it. (laughs) In fact, the more you tell people, don't do it, the more they'll do it. Because you're talking to this young group of people who want to be challenging the status quo. So we know that that's going to be a real problem in order to be able to do that. And if you look at our existing technologies, so what is it we have? What are the tools that we have to prevent HIV? Well, put very simply, they're the ABCs, right? Abstinence, be faithful, condoms, and circumcision. And you can now add PrEP to that. So if you take the ABCs, 
you know, abstinence, well, that's, you're too late generally. Be faithful is a pointless message to give young girls because they'll be faithful to the man who's actually going to give them HIV because they can't insist on his faithfulness. Condoms are very difficult when you think about an 18-year-old trying to convince a 28-year-old not to use a condom. That's going to be a challenge at the best of times. And when you think about circumcision, circumcision protects men, doesn't protect women at all. So your existing ABCs do not provide any technology or any approach to reducing age disparate transmission of HIV through sex. That means we have to depend on broader society changes, which are very difficult to achieve, especially in the short term, and we have to depend on new technologies coming down the line. And I think all of these have to be done. We can't simply put our hands up and say, oh, well, we can't do anything about it, let's go home, because that's not an option. You make a life out of HIV research, but funding seems to be declining in this area. Why? I think what we have been seeing, Mia, is that in many ways, HIV has been a victim of its own success. The immediate challenge and the crisis in the eyes of the public have been mitigated because now there's treatment. So people can just live normally and treatment's available freely nowadays. So there's a sense that we've solved the problem or we've turned the corner. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. The reality today is that there will be 5,000 people who will become newly infected with HIV today. So nobody can tell me you've turned a corner or you've solved a problem. If you're getting 5,000 new HIV infections just in one day in the world, that tells me we have a lot to do. Our work is far from finished, and if we take our foot off the pedal, we will see a reversal of the gains that we have achieved. We will go backwards in our uh, response to the HIV epidemic. Now is the time to renew our efforts. Now is the time to put a new effort into how we tackle HIV. And now is the time for us to galvanize our partnerships and together to find ways to move our response forward. That was Professor Salim Abdul Karim, who is the co-director and founder of the Centre for the Programme of AIDS Research in South Africa. The production for this podcast was done by Dylan Bush and Danny Boyson. Until next time, I'm Mia Malan. This was a Pegasus podcast.